0: This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, we're doing a new crowdfunding campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. With Patreon, you can pledge a certain amount each month, and in return for helping to sustain the show, You're going to get some great new benefits, like back episodes, exclusive content, show merchandise, shout-outs on the podcast, video hangouts, invitations to live events, and more. Again, go to patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for your support, and thanks for continuing to listen. And now, enjoy the podcast. I'm Ben Mathis and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. My guest today is a rising star in the Democratic Party and he's likely to be on the short list of running mates for Hillary Clinton in 2016. He's Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. And even he would admit that his path to political office was surprising. He spent most of his 20s on the 10-year plan at Wesleyan University, finding himself and figuring out what he wanted to do with his life, He tried his hand at writing, photography, and real estate, among other things, before moving to Colorado to work as a geologist for the oil and gas industry. All the while, he indulged his passion for home brewing in his free time before eventually deciding to turn that hobby into a business. At a time when few people had ever heard of a brew pub or craft beer, he opened Wincoop Brewing Company, which led the way to the revival of downtown Denver's Lodo District. A popular fixture in the downtown community, John Hickenlooper was convinced to run for mayor of Denver, where he served for two terms before being elected governor of Colorado in 2010. As governor, he managed to bring Republicans and Democrats together to balance Colorado's budget. He helped environmentalists and the oil and gas industry find common ground on the issue of fracking, He managed a variety of crises from the worst drought Colorado had seen in 75 years to the tragic shooting that left 12 dead at a movie theater in Aurora, and he cautiously administered the state's new legalization of recreational marijuana. And now he's written a rather unconventional political biography called The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. And today, Governor John Hickenlooper will talk about his misspent youth that included pot smoking, chasing girls, and dabbling in artistic nude photography. We'll discuss how he pioneered the brew pub right in the heart of Coors country, and how he led the way in the urban revival of downtown Denver. He'll talk about his initial opposition to Colorado's recreational marijuana law, and how the rest of the country is now looking to his state as a test case on that issue. We'll talk about how he approached the controversial issue of fracking from the standpoint of a geologist, and why on earth he once drank fracking fluid. Plus, we'll talk about being a potential running mate to Hillary Clinton, our mutual love of the short stories of Damon Runyon, what makes a good beer, and why he once took his mother to an X-rated movie. Coming up with the interesting and unconventional Governor John Hickenlooper in just a moment.
1: To Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis.
0: Today I'm joined by Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Uh, He has a new book called The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. And I like that you put beer first. Uh, Governor (laughs) Hickenlooper, thanks for joining me over the phone. You bet, Ben. Thanks for having me. Well, the book is pretty interesting. You know, I I got to say, you're kind of a goofy guy, and I say that in the very best way. (laughs) You spend spend about half of the book talking about uh, kind of your misspent youth, wandering around, not sure what you wanted to do with your life and chasing girls. (laughs) And You later spent uh, part of your career as a geologist and built a successful microbrewery chain, You were popular mayor of Denver and now governor and someone who has been hailed by political analysts and the media alike as a vice presidential contender. And I know because it says so right here in the sleeve of your book. <laughs> now that's an unusual, like many things in the book, it's unusual for anyone to, to throw it out there like that. You're supposed to say, I'm happy being governor or senator right where I am, and that's the farthest thing from my mind and all that, you know.
1: Well, that's, they're trying to sell books. We don't write the sleeve of the book. That's what Penguin Press does. Oh, so okay. You, can hardly, you can't really officially blame them for trying to, you know, find devices by which to sell more books.
0: Okay, okay. So that's a, that was all marketing. Mm-hmm. That wasn't you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think when people say that I'm on a short list, I think the list is much longer than what they suggest. And I think I'm probably further down the list than most people would, would think.
0: Okay. Well, have you been contacted by Hillary's campaign yet?
1: No. I mean I've – we talked to their campaign and are very supportive, but no one has asked for my tax returns. No one has uh, said that I should consider being vetted. Uh, Okay. They they have not in any way reached out. (laughs) Okay. It is important to point out that I do have the best job of any governor in the country because Colorado not only is the most beautiful state but is the most fun.
0: Uh yeah, you have all the the great outdoor activities there and uh you know, really biking, nice summers. And
1: skiing and you name it, everything.
0: Yeah, that's true. I guess you're you're a lot more open in this book than most politicians in the middle of their career would be. You know, if anything, this is the kind of biography that someone writes once they retire because you talk openly about your divorce, going to therapy, your dating life youthful indiscretions, smoking pot when you were young, uh, dabbling in photography, and apparently taking a nude self-portrait of yourself in the bathtub that I think won (laughs) some awards when you were a photographer. Uh, This is not the carefully worded biography of a typical politician. Um, I'm curious, when you showed your political advisors the rough draft, did they try to redact certain sections before it went to press?
1: (laughs) Well, you know... No one really tried to push back, just because the genesis for for writing a memoir in the middle of one's career it really is to try and show to the public that we are more authentic. Uh, you know that, that we're not. You know, so many people are frustrated and 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 really angry that they think you know politicians are just in it for themselves. Yeah. They're not really in it for public service. And, and that they never, you know, they're never revealing. They're not allowing the vulnerable side of their, of their, side, of their past to, to be seen. And I thought, you know, if we're going to write a book like this, tell it like it was, works and all. Let people see the reality. Uh, a, it makes a better story, I think. But B, it, it, hopefully it, it makes people feel uh, closer and, 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 and makes me appear to be, you know, as honest as I am.
0: Yeah, I think you do achieve that. Definitely. You come off as a human being and a pretty likable guy, I think, as they say, the kind of politician that people would want to have a beer with.
1: Yeah, right. But it helps if you have a brewery, if you're going to be someone that people want to have a beer with. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Well, you know, in the old (laughs) days,
0: politicians used to, you know, just go to bars and give out free beers for votes. I guess you can't do that. No, you sure can't. All right. Well, I guess the first about 30 years of your life, uh, you're kind of finding yourself, um, as I mentioned, one of the funny stories in here that's – of many of them that are pretty endearing. Um, you talk about when you were in college and you first started out thinking you were going to be a writer. And then you gravitated toward photography and you were taking, a, I guess, a skin class or – what, do you, what it would a you call that, advanced, a body study a, class? It
1: was, a, it was a class in advanced photography and the assignment was light on skin. Okay, um, and so and and and, were, and then the next one was a uh, the next one was a self portrait. I thought it would be an unusual portrait, self portrait, to really. And the idea was to have my head half submerged, with one eye uh, above water and one eye kind of half in water. So your you're, you're almost your eye almost bulges out just because it's right in the water. I thought that would be an unusual expression to capture.
0: Now, does that photograph still exist? Uh, Somewhere, but I can't find it. (laughs) Thank God. Well, be careful. Someone will, one way or another. Um, You you also have a funny story about when you were doing, let's call it an artistic nude of a friend of yours, Margie, in downtown Middletown. Middletown. In downtown Middletown, Middletown, and a yeah, and a cop shows up. And uh, how did you get out of a public indecency arrest there?
1: Well, he came around the corner, and Margie had, uh, and our friend Debbie was kind of with us helping do this. And Margie was sitting in the bucket of a steam shovel, uh, <laughs> and, and she had just pulled off her poncho, so she was stark naked. And I had my old Volkswagen uh, perpendicular to the sidewalk, so the front, front wheels were up on the, side, on the curb. So the headlights, you know, made, it looked almost like, you know, fashion lighting. Uh, and it had been kind of raining all night. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, everybody else had gone to bed. And this officer, this police officer, there were only two Middletown police officers that were out patrolling. I mean Middletown was maybe 40,000 people back in those days. And so the officer, all, all I heard, he came around the corner. And since I was in the shadows taking the picture, he didn't see me. I just heard his voice, and his voice was, the boys at the office are never going to believe this.
0: <laughs> I'll bet. And uh, and he, I guess you didn't get in trouble, but he asked uh, for for you to send him a copy of the photograph, didn't
1: he? Yeah, he asked if I'd mind if he got a copy, and so I looked at Margie, assuming that she would say no way, uh, and she was you know she was just having a blast, and she said, sure, why not? <laughs> and so he called me every week for like a month, and so finally I sent him a copy, and. Uh, in the end, his wife found it and, and, and ripped it up.
0: <laughs> and then he asked you for another one, I think. Exactly. What his next-door neighbor, whose
1: mother was best friends with his wife, uh, was in my photo class. So this young woman was uh, in Middletown High School. And she heard about the story from her mother because Officer Labadio's, uh wife found the photograph in the bottom of his sock drawer where he thought it would be safely hidden. <laughs> and so she ripped it up. And so, sure enough, I heard this story from my my co-student from Middletown High. And, you know, a week later he calls up and says, you know, could I get another print?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, another one of the amusing stories uh, from your earlier years here is one of those odd moments when you and a friend took your mom to a movie. What movie did you go to see with Dear Old Mom? Well, you need context first. We'd just come home. From,
1: and this really does get to the opposite of woe, right? My my mother had been widowed twice, and so my dad right. died. My my father was her second husband, and so he died when I was eight. So we all kind of grew up. She raised four of us by herself, and then when I went off to college, she was alone. And, and I don't think I really appreciate how lonely she was. And so I came home at Thanksgiving, and I'd already called my old buddy, uh, Jed. And we'd arranged we we're going to go see one of the very first X movies, right? And this was uh, the, the you know, rather famous movie, Deep Throat. And we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what an X movie was. We thought it was maybe a little risque. But anyway, I got home, and my mother had prepared this amazing dinner. And I said, you know, I said, geez, I've got to leave. I, I promised Jed I was going to go to a movie with him in, in an hour and a half. And I felt so, and she looked so sad, and I felt so guilty. I said, do you want to come? It's an X movie, do, you know do you want to come? And she was so lonely. She said, yes, I'd love to come. And then we, so we go to this movie and my mom was five foot and I'm six, two, my friend Jed's six, three. And, and we, you know, the person taking the tickets looked like we were a little, little off our rocker and we walk in and we sit down and the first scene is like really, I mean, it's pornographic, pornographic, it's raunchy. And I, I look at my mom, I think, I, you know, we shouldn't we leave? And my mother was from, you know, grew up in the depression and she sewed all her own clothes, and you know, washed tinfoil and saran wrap and reused it. And she's once she pays for a, a ticket, she's gonna she's gonna darn well watch the
0: movie. And so I said, I think I think we should leave. And she goes, No, I'll be fine. And we watched the whole darn thing. What did she think of it? Two thumbs up or two thumbs down?
1: As she said afterwards, she says uh, she says, Well, I, I I I don't think the acting was very good, but the movie was very well made. Right. <laughs> She she would always try to find something nice to say about almost anything.
0: Oh, well, she, your mom sounds like a sweet gal. Um, you know, your 20s are kind of a, an extended rum rumspringa where you're uh, bouncing around, dabbling in different careers and considering different options and chasing girls. You know, I think that you give hope to young boys who go through that college period and maybe even beyond that not knowing what they want to do with their life. Do you have any advice for them? Well, in a funny way, the, the whole book is a call to action for for those of us that, you know,
1: I grew up with thick glasses and acne and I was skinny. And I, I thought I'd never get a girlfriend. I mean, that is the a lot of the first part of the book is just how frustrated and how hopeless I thought it all was. Yeah. And yet, most of us kind of, we grow into ourselves at a certain point. Obviously, it took me longer than most, but I do think the book is kind of a call to action that, that, nerds of the world unite, you too can get involved in, in issues that matter and you can make a difference if you're willing to work hard and, and, and work well with other people. And I think that's, you know, whether you're talking about someone never finding a girlfriend or whether someone finding meaningful or finding meaning in their life in, in a funny way, it's the same thing. In both cases, it's, it is the opposite of woe, you know, the opposite of woe being to, to giddy up
0: a side note here. One thing that I found amusing in here in the many hats that you wore in those first years, uh, you dabbled in writing and you were going to write a screenplay on the life of Damon Runyon, who I love. I've always been a huge fan of him. And, and, uh, you know, a few years back as a producer, I actually was developing uh, some of his short stories into a television series. So big fan of Damon Runyon.
1: What a great idea to do that! You know, you should sell that. Oh, I gosh, I think that's such a. I, my friend Jed and I, when he first moved out to Colorado, in I think it was 1986 or '87, we worked on a screenplay, and we have a, a you know, long, you know, three, way too long, 280-page, 300-page screenplay of the life of David Damon Runyon, because he grew up in Pueblo, Colorado, and then kind of came of age. Uh, as a as a journalist and a, a newspaper reporter in in Denver from maybe from right uh, I
0: didn't 1910 know that
1: 1930 and then he moved to New York and that's when he created all those Broadway characters that are immortalized in his short stories.
0: Yeah, uh, from and Guy, they, know, if people the, don't know it's the inspiration for Guys and Dolls. That's the musical Guys and Dolls is based off of all the short stories of Damon Runyon, which were about Broadway and gangsters in the 20s and so forth.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I've it, always it loved Damon Runyon. Stories.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, he he had his own language that he created, kind of colloquialisms, much like P.G. Woodhouse. You would have made a good character in there with a name like John Hickenlooper. I think that you probably (laughs) would have fit right in with one of his short stories there. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, back in just a moment. If you're interested in my conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper, then you'll enjoy his new book, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download which can be the opposite of woe by my guest today, Governor John Hickenlooper, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now back to more with Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. You eventually went on to become a geologist and to work in the oil and gas industry, and that wasn't quite for you. But you had been uh, doing microbrew kind of as a hobby for quite a while, and you decided to start your own brew pub. Um, what was that process like? Because you didn't have a business background.
1: Yes, I had a I had a master's in geology, but I had never, you know, I had no real applicable business experience to speak of. And our company got sold, the price of oil collapsed in the mid eighties and, and the whole company, everyone got laid off. And so there were no jobs. I mean, every other oil company was laying people off like crazy. So nobody was hiring. So after some months, uh, I saw a brew pub in California. And as you say, I used to be a home brewer. And so I tasted the beer in this in this, in this this microbrewery in Berkeley, California uh, called Triple Rock, still there to today. And I said, wow, this isn't as fizzy. It's got more flavor. I'd drive 20 minutes out of my way to come try a beer like this. And yet I went back to Denver and I still was looking, thinking either I would maybe try to be a writer, uh, get that another chance, or I would go back and try and find a geology job. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't take it seriously until some of my friends said, you know, you keep talking about this brew pub, you should run a brew pub. You'd be great at running a restaurant. And Fresh beer, you you know, you've always loved beer and you've been a brewer at home. Why not take a chance on it? And, you know, after enough people said that to me, uh, it began to make sense.
0: And you were really kind of ahead of your time. It must have been a tough sell because this was before the whole boom in microbreweries came. This was in the 80s, right? Yeah, this was, we signed the lease in
1: 1987. And we were the first brew pub in the Rocky Mountains. We were the fourth brewing license in the state of Colorado. And that was... The people ahead of us were Coors, Budweiser had a license up in Fort Collins, and then the Boulder Brewing Company was the first uh, microbrewery in the state of Colorado. So we were the fourth, and I think at that time there were only about 80, 85 breweries in the entire United States of America. Now there are over 4,000. So it really was, I mean, it was something that I loved, and, and I, you know, I never thought it was going to make me a lot of money. I just thought it was something that I wouldn't lose my money, but I, you know, I might be able to earn a living, and that...
0: You know, that it was something I could really throw myself into and, and really, and really love. Yeah. And this was in Colorado, which was Coors country. Yeah, exactly.
1: In those days, everyone was used to this kind of very light, very fizzy, you know, without a lot of hops, without a lot of flavor. Uh, this kind of, you know, it was a fizzy, ice cold experience. But it really wasn't what we think of as beer in the craft beer movement.
0: After that, you decided to run for mayor of Denver, and you were very successful in that role. Uh, You took part in the revival of Denver, which had been in decline. Uh, You you really were involved in that both as a business leader and then as mayor. Um, Right now, a lot of cities in decline, like, say, Detroit, are looking for that magic recipe for urban revival. What do you think the key is?
1: Well, there are probably several keys. One important key is to make sure that that the community is willing to invest in itself and that, that you have a, a culture of collaboration. One thing that's always defined the West, and especially uh, especially the Rocky Mountains, but especially Denver and Colorado, is you know we were settled by the wagon train where everyone worked together, everyone had a, a defined role of what they did to make sure that, that wagon train succeeded. And I think that's part of what, that, that collaborative instinct is part of what made uh, Colorado, the success it is. And, and certainly when we were trying to change the economy of Denver, you know, we got a bunch of restaurateurs and we were all in this old historic warehouse district called Lower Downtown. We started calling it Lodo. We started advertising together in the Denver Post. We started trying to define Lodo as a, a, as a specific place where people could come and no matter which of these six restaurants you went to, you'd have a good time. And that, that collaborative effort really has carried through I mean, back then there were probably 25 or 30 restaurants downtown. Now there are over 300. But we also made dramatic investments in our infrastructure on a regional basis. So we built Coors Field downtown. We built the Pepsi Center downtown. We built Mile High, the Mile High Stadium, Invesco Field at Mile High, with with you know public tax dollars and when we, we, needed, we saw that we needed transit or else our, our highways were all clogged, we got all 34 mayors in the whole regional area to, I mean, two-thirds were Republicans, but all 34 unanimously supported a 4 of a cent sales tax increase so that we could build what was called fast tracks, but 119 miles of new track. I think that collaborative effort that we're all in this together, and if we work hard enough together, we're going to succeed, we're going to create a vision and a plan, and then we're going to work like, like crazy to make it a reality. I mean, that's what every city that wants to turn itself around, that's, what, that's the most crucial ingredient, I think, is having everyone work together.
0: And your successful experience as mayor led you to run for governor, and you've been a very popular governor. You actually were able to get both sides of the aisle to join hands and pass a, a balanced budget. What is the secret to bipartisanship in your experience?
1: Well, Colorado is lucky because we have a, what's called a joint budget committee, and when you've got split houses, right, the, it, here the Republicans control the Senate, the Democrats control the House. So the joint budget committee is three Democrats, three Republicans, so you almost have to get a bipartisan – they're the ones who control the budget. You almost have to be bipartisan, but we went way beyond that. We were able to get bipartisan budgets where we would have 85 or 90 or even 95 of the total 100 people in the general Assembly, uh, again, roughly fifty percent Democrats, fifty percent Republicans, uh, and we get eighty five or ninety percent of them to support the budget and and really it's making sure that everyone works together, that collaboration again, that, that we're not pushing one party or one you know one geographic region of the state, that no one's getting disadvantaged, everyone's at the table. Everyone has a voice, and we try to create the best budget, the the most fair budget for everyone.
0: Yeah, and another example of you bringing people together, you brokered an agreement between the oil and gas industry and environmental leaders on fracking. Uh, you're a geologist, and you say that fracking gets a bad rap. What do you say to the environmentalists who hold a degree of scorn for the fracking industry that's usually reserved for Enron and illegal arms traders, I think? <laughs>
1: well, what I tell people is, is, I have the same end goal, the same values they have. We all want to get to a clean energy economy, uh, wind, solar, renewable energy sources. Uh, but but if you want to ban fracking, right, if you think fracking is the evil thing, fracking. If you ban fracking, you're basically saying we're not going to have any drilling for oil and gas anywhere in the country, which right. is obviously what a lot of people want, and that's in this country that would say cuz so many retired couples they own mineral rights under under these leases right. and it's basically telling them that the government's going to take away their private property without compensating them so i mean that happens in russia that doesn't happen in the united states we we use yeah. eminent domain we compensate people if we want to take their private property so what we've tried to do in colorado is say all right you're entitled to your private property to access these minerals but you have to do it in a safe environmentally friendly way. So we took the fines, if someone spills frack fluid or crude oil on the ground or into the water, the, the, the fines used to be 500 bucks a day. Now they're $15,000 a day. Wow. It used to be able to, to, to flare, get rid of, you know, have leaks in methane into the atmosphere, terrible air pollution. Uh, now we make every single oil company uh, monitor every single well at least once a year. And we we have dramatically reduced those those kinds of emissions. We made sure that the oil and gas companies have to reveal what's in track fluid. I mean, we hold ourselves to these very high environmental standards. We're not we're not banning fracking, but we're saying if you're going to do it in the state of Colorado, you're going to make sure darn well you're going to do it safely in a clean, environmentally uh, safe way.
0: Yeah, and I, I read in here that you drank fracking fluid. <laughs> Was that a... Well, was that to prove that well, it's not as bad as as people think it is? No, I mean you don't want to drink frack fluid, trust me. Uh, <laughs> I'm
1: sure. this was we had the head of Halliburton, which is one of the big service companies that actually does the fracking. And I was trying to convince them that they should reveal, not the exact formula, but just like Coca-Cola does on the bottle, that they needed to right. reveal the 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 basic ingredients. Uh, of what was in frac fluid, because people were getting hysterical. They thought that the oil and gas industry was cheating them and was putting poison into the ground. So uh, these guys had a, a prototype. This was not for sale, but they had a type of frac fluid that they were experimenting with, where every ingredient was approved to be used as a food. Right? It was approved by the FDA. Okay. And so it was things like glycerin or carrageenan—they were all natural plant products that that had been proven to be safe for human consumption. And they were, so this fractal fluid was very kind of highly viscous and totally transparent. It looked like water, but it had the consistency of like somewhere between oil and water, uh, oil and jello. And, and, you know, I was trying to show these guys from Halliburton that they could trust me, that I was going to be a fair witness. I wasn't going to be on one side or the other. And this prototype that they had, that, again, they couldn't sell. They wanted to show it to me because so, they said, if you make us reveal exactly what's in, our, in, our, uh, in, in the exact composition of our frac fluid, we'll never be able to get to this point of having a frac fluid that you could pour into rivers and streams and wouldn't hurt anybody. Uh, so to show them that I was trustworthy, I took a swig. I mean, their CEO, <laughs> David Lazar, had taken a swig of this prototype, this frack fluid. So I took a swig, but it, it certainly you would not want to do that with regular fr- frack fluid, which is full of all kinds of hydrocarbons.
0: Well, do you think that might inspire a new IPA for you? <laughs> you never can tell. I always tell
1: people when I when I left the geology business and then went into the brewpub business, I was really just going from one fluid with dissolved gases <laughs> into another yeah. fluid with dissolved gases.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, from one vice to another, uh, let's talk about perhaps what right now Colorado is best known for, uh, the recreational use of marijuana, which was passed by popular referendum, uh, as governor, you opposed legalization of recreational marijuana. Have you softened on that a little bit?
1: You know, it's been three years and I have softened, uh, I, I was against it at the time, and if I'd had a magic wand after the election, and it passed 55-45, which in my book means I have to implement the will of the people.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: if I had a magic wand and I could have reversed that vote, I probably would have done it. Not that I think the old system worked, and it didn't. It was a failure. I just didn't want to be in conflict with federal law. I thought that the, you know, having to create a regulatory system from scratch was just going to be a very steep hill. But over the last three and a half years, we've we've come a long way. We're beginning, at least anecdotally, to to see fewer drug dealers out there, which makes sense. If you take away a whole product category of what a salesperson is trying to sell – you would expect there to be less salespeople. Yeah, I was and, curious and drug- about
0: that because that's that's always the pitch that legalization people make: that oh, it'll reduce crime, and you know there'll be less drug dealers, and it'll be safer. So you, as the test case for this for the rest of the country, you say that in that sense, it's actually proving to be true.
1: Well, we're beginning to see that. We don't have data, but we're seeing that anecdotally. And I tell, I still tell other other uh, governors that they probably should wait. You know, a couple of years to make sure that there aren't uh, unintended consequences that we haven't seen yet, and I, you know, I think that's right. Good and you don't
0: want to lose all that pot tourism either.
1: <laughs> I don't care about that. Trust me, that all the taxes, all the taxes put together uh, from recreational and medical marijuana is about 120 million dollars a year. Our budget 27 billion dollars. So. The tax revenues we're using just to make sure that we have mental health treatment for teenagers that do tripod, and they, it turns out that it makes them intensely bipolar. Even after, they're, after they come down, they still have medical, uh, right. mental challenges. Yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of. We know that there are medical medical repercussions, and, and we use the tax money to try and minimize those those uh, those secondary effects. We're not using it to expand early childhood education or fix potholes in the road. Uh, it's not, it shouldn't, no one should ever look at, you know, legalizing marijuana for, for the revenue. It's, I mean, the the reason we passed, that's a good point. uh, the reason we passed recreational marijuana is because for the last seven or eight years, all these young people, millennials have been moving here in droves. I mean, that's, for, there are more live music venues now in Denver than there are in Nashville or Austin. I mean, we've really? become this hotbed for, oh yeah. And I went wow. last night and saw this band called, uh, the Lumineers, amazing Band. It, they played at Red Rocks, but they're a local Denver band. We have the Lumineers and Nathaniel Raitliff and the Night Sweats and the Fray and One Republic. All these Colorado bands in the last 10 years have kind of exploded just because of all the young people that are here. And those young people are the ones who they think marijuana is no different than whiskey. Why shouldn't right. we have it you know, regulated the same way alcohol is?
0: Right, right. But, you know, but people are very dismissive of it. They say that there's no risk, there's no harm there. And, you know, clearly you seem to be aware that particularly for young people, there is a risk while their brains are developing and so forth. Um, You talk about Colorado as a microcosm of America at this particular moment in our history. What does Colorado tell us about the country as a whole?
1: Well, Colorado is in many ways a true microcosm. It's, one-third Democrat, one-third Republican, one-third unaffiliated. And I think it is it it is instructive to look at, I mean, we have the same anger in Colorado that you see all across the country, the anger that's supporting people like Bernie Sanders or, or Donald Trump, people that have lost their jobs, or at least their, their careers have been really impacted by technology and all these efficiencies and in in the technology brings and imaging and and big data. I mean, you know, look at how few bank tellers we have, how, I mean, all these different industries have been dramatically reduced or eliminated, and that's probably going to keep happening. And we have to figure out how to retrain people much more rapidly. And I think that, hopefully Colorado, we have a similar cross-section and a similar problem of the rest of the country, but we're only five and a half million people. So we're hopeful that we can be kind of the the laboratory by which we find some solutions and figure out how do we retrain people rapidly so they can get on to a new career when technology eliminates their old one.
0: Well, before we go, what makes a good beer? Because I don't know anything about beer. Uh, in terms of a good beer,
1: you need great ingredients and you need to be very careful, make sure everything's clean. Uh, and... Again, a great beer is a function, really, of the character of the brewer, and that, in many cases, is, you know, great people make great beer. Is the way I've always said it, and that, and that really holds true in the brew pub and the microbrewery business.
0: And maybe great presidents one day. <laughs> You'll we'll see about that. <laughs> I don't trust me. I, I'm not looking to be president. Just so you're perfectly clear. Okay. I am
1: very happy to be okay. the first governor since since uh, you know, if you Sam Adams was elected governor of of Massachusetts in 1791. So I'm the first governor, first brewer to be elected governor since then.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Well, I'm sure that you're, you know, if you got elected vice president or president, I'm pretty sure that your publisher wouldn't mind a second printing. (laughs) You're probably right. (laughs) the, The book is called The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics, and I'm talking with Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado. Governor, thanks for joining me over the phone.
1: That was really a pleasure. Enjoyed every minute. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Governor John Hickenlooper for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to read his new book, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics. I'll include an Amazon link where you can order it in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. And if you'd prefer to listen to the audio version, you can download that for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash politics. You can follow Governor Hickenlooper on Twitter at hickforco. 4 co That's H-I-C-K-F-O-R-C-O, as in Colorado. And if you're ever in Colorado, you can still go get a cold one at his original brew pub, WinCoop, right in the heart of the Lodo District in downtown Denver. Please subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And you can also help us reach our fundraising goal for the year and get rewarded by donating to our Patreon campaign at patreon.com backslash kickasspolitics. Follow us on Twitter at @kaPolitics or visit Kick-Ass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.